So we're in a section of Mark, as quite possibly everyone knows here this morning, unless you're visiting, uh, where Jesus is now in Jerusalem, just two days away from the most horrific hour in history. He's predicted that three times he's going to be put to death by the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And the horror of Jesus' death, I think we can safely say, is not his physical suffering. It was terrible, but folks have suffered in concentration camps or under diseases for years that have been terribly painful. The horror of Jesus' death goes deeper than physical suffering. It's in those moments on the cross where Jesus became sin for us, as Pastor Mike prayed earlier. All the sins that we had committed and will commit were placed on Jesus. He was the bearer of our sin in that moment and receiving God's judgment upon himself. He was our substitute there. He took the judgment in ways that we who are Christians will never experience. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to know that the Jesus in this story, whom we're going to study this morning, the Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is a real man. He's the Son of God. He willfully came, and as we've been studying in Mark, he was making his way to Jerusalem intentionally as a substitute in your place. But he's only your substitute if you believe upon him in faith and receive his life as a gift. So here's Jesus in Jerusalem. It's two days out. The religious leaders have been hounding him. They've been trying to trip him up with these controversial questions. Everyone loves to watch a good controversy. Somebody's going to come away defeated. You know, it's like those debates that some of you have been watching. You want to see somebody fail miserably. And that's what these leaders want to see in Jesus. They want to see him stick his foot in his mouth. They want to see a gaffe. They want him to be defeated. So they present these controversies to Jesus in the form of questions. The first question was, by what authority do you come into Jerusalem and upend the temple like this? And he wouldn't answer them directly. He answered them in a parable. And with the parable, we saw his wisdom on display. The owner of the vineyard, remember that? There were farmers who had the vineyard. The owner sent messengers. They tortured. They killed him. Eventually, the owner sent his own son. They killed the son. And while he didn't answer them directly, they very well knew that the owner represents the father and the son represents Jesus. The second question was, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Yes, let's bring in the politics. Surely... This religious leader is going to trip up in the area of politics. He's going to disappoint someone. And we see Jesus' wisdom on display. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Okay, next round. It's the Sadducees, another group. A woman outlasted seven husbands. Seven husbands here on earth. Now, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Well, Jesus answers, God is going to raise us and he's going to change us. We're going to be like the angels, neither marrying nor given in marriage. By the way, somebody asked me recently, sounded like you may have said, we're not going to even know each other. 
No, we'll know each other. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4 that those who have died and gone before us, we will be able to see them once again, therefore comfort one another with these words. We will know one another. It's just that when God changes us, he's going to move us past any relationship that we've had here on earth so that our ability to relate to one another and our ability to relate to God will be so much greater. So here's Jesus. He has outlasted his attackers. Three controversial questions have come up and he's put them all to rest. And now there's a scribe or a scholar of the law that steps into the ring. And he asks Jesus the following question. Concerning the law, what commandment is the most important of them all? Now, the law given to Israel by God at Sinai has 613 laws in it. And it was not uncommon for religious leaders to try to summarize the law by pointing to one of those 613. This was the kind of stuff that was talked about in schools of theology. So the revered Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, had been asked a similar question. Rabbi Hillel died around 10 AD. I don't remember the exact date, but he preceded Jesus by a few decades. He was asked to summarize the law, and his answer was this. What you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the entire Torah. Everything else is interpretation. Now, if, if, if you're a Jew in that first century, you knew who Rabbi Hillel was. Other leading rabbis said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of the law. Another rabbi said, in all your ways acknowledge God and he will make your path straight, Proverbs 3. Another one said, the righteous will live by faith. That's how we summarize law. So here's Jesus being asked by a scribe, an expert on the law, what is the greatest commandment in all of the law? So Jesus has to weigh in on this. And the answers that are given are expected to be answers that others can debate with and disagree with. So we have to ask Jesus, what is your answer? And he gives us some of these more familiar words in the Bible. He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's his answer. All right, so two points to the sermon that we're going to cover this morning. Very simple points, very practical in nature. Point number one is love God. Jesus is telling us to love God. Now, when Jesus answers this scribe, I mentioned he is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if he's being asked which law is the most important, he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I read for you Jesus' words in the Gospel of Mark, but Deuteronomy 6 says the following. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, just a few observations that Jesus is drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 6. When Moses says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, 
what Moses is saying is this. There is only one God. This was massively important for the Jews in Moses' day, for the Jews in Jesus' day, and for us in our day. In all three points of history, the pagan religions of Canaan believed in the gods. The pagan religions during the time of Jesus believed in the Greek-Roman pantheon of gods. Today, religions all around the world believe in multiple deities. But Jesus is saying there is only one God. There is one divine being. He is singular in nature. You need to know that. And then Moses says to the people of Israel, now with this one God, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now what's important here is that there is one God here and Moses says he is your God. Notice the relational ownership that's here. He is your God. That your is there for a reason. So right now, you are sitting in your chair. Nobody else can come alongside and scoot you off of it and say, now give me that. That belongs to you. You're wearing your clothes right now. You have this sort of relational ownership. So when the Bible says, love the Lord your God, we're to recognize the relationship that is in place. This is a covenantal relationship that Moses is highlighting for the people of God. He came to them at Sinai. He redeemed them out of Egypt. And he brought them into this relationship so that he is now their God. Possessive ownership there. Where would God's people be without him? One of the verses in the Old Testament that points to this ownership, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, God comes to his people and he says this, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. So don't let fear be present. Don't let dismay be present. Why? Here's the reason. For I am your God. So here's what we see. The presence of God, the relationship with God, is a truth that drives fear out of the lives of those who are in relationship with him. And notice what he says. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is a God who enters into covenant with his people. And in that covenant, he is our God. You are never alone. I think this truth about God really started to sink in when I was in 10th grade. My parents switched me to a new school, and I think I can safely say I knew absolutely no one in that school first day. It seemed like everyone knew each other. Friendships had been in place since elementary years. I went in not having anyone to call my friend. And it hit me while I was walking down the hall. If I am a Christian, I am not alone. If you're a Christian, you are never alone. Why? Because the Lord is your God. He is with you wherever you go. If you've believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are in covenant relationship with God. God has come to you and he has saved you. 
So how does Jesus instruct us when we're in covenant relationship with God to relate to him? How would God have us now relate to him? Jesus simply tells us this, drawing from Deuteronomy 6. He says, to love him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Now, I'm guessing that the majority of you at some point last night watched that football game. Green against blue. And here I was, I watched the first half, and there were some people there who absolutely loved the Wolverines. You knew it was the case. They're in Ann Arbor, and there's everybody waving those maize little flaggy things. But what caught my attention a few times as I watched the first half, with all of the blue, with all of the maize that's being waved, the camera occasionally went to this guy who was in a green spandex shirt, long sleeve. He had painted his beard green. I think he had painted his hair green, and then he had green sunglasses on. He was clearly showing that he was devoted to the Spartans. Everything about him, you could say, was given over to the Spartans, even in the middle of a crowd that was clearly given over to the other team. This guy was devoted. You could see his devotion. And what Jesus is calling us to here is no excuses, no environmental excuses, no circumstantial excuses. The people of God who are in relationship with God are to be completely devoted to him. And so here are these four categories, to love God with our whole heart, to love him with our whole soul, our whole mind, and our whole strength. Everything about us is to be pointing to our love for God. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a second, that passage from Deuteronomy had three areas of life, and Jesus mentions four. What's the deal here? I always get confused when I'm reciting that verse. Is that heart, soul, and strength, or heart, soul, mind, and strength? What is it? Well, just briefly, if you've asked that question before, one commentator, and I believe he's right, says it's more than likely that there were different ways of translating the same Hebrew term. The term soul could be the inner person. It could also be your thoughts. And so when Jesus is mentioning this here, he's mentioning, I want you to not leave out any particular area of your life. I want all parts of your life to be included in this. We love God completely. Now, this might be a question for you, especially if you're a non-Christian. You might say, This makes God sound very egotistical. I mean, for God to command us to love him like this, he wants all of us being given over to him. Isn't that kind of like this egomaniac God? Well, think about this from a different vantage point. When two people come together in marriage, the vows that they commit to each other are that they will love one another. They come together in a covenant. The reason why they commit to love one another is because it is best for that man to love that woman and for that woman to love that man. And we say that that's not egotistical. We're saying that that relationship will thrive when that man loves that husband and when that husband loves... Wait a second. (laughs) 
you all didn't notice it either until I did. When that husband loves that woman and that, oh man, should we just go home right now? <laughs> and when that woman loves that husband, highlight, delete, erase that from the website, all that stuff. You get the picture. Inside of that marriage, that wife is to love that husband, and that husband is to love that wife. It's best that way. So when we're commanded to love God, it's best for us because of the relationship that we're in. It's best for us to be committed to God. God has designed us for a relationship with him. God has created us to find our fulfillment and our joy in him. And to go and find it in other places is going to be a spiritual adultery that is going to lead us into ruin. And so that's what happens. Our love can easily drift from God. It did for Israel throughout the centuries in the Old Testament. They drifted away to other idols and it wreaked havoc. We love success sometimes more than God. Our heart is given over to that. Our affections are given over to that. We love the dreams of what we could possibly be. If I can just get myself to the next figure income, the six-figure income, I can get myself into a particular role. I can get myself into that place of life. I can see myself with a smile on my face. We love our control. If I can just get my life under control, the sickness that I've had or this relationship that I've had or this particular project in my life, then I can see a smile on my face. And what happens is you begin to love those things or the possibility of those things with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And everything in your life begins to take on a new center. Instead of God being at the center where our affections, where our thoughts, where our actions are being given over to God, something else is there. It's an idol. But God is saying, you'll never find satisfaction and you weren't designed to find satisfaction in that. So for God to command us to love him is to save us from being a slave to sin and idolatry. And only God can be the true satisfaction for us. And as Christians, we know that. I think we know that when we come together at times, we're gathered together in our singing and our scripture reading and our prayer, and there is all of us that is being given over to God in that moment, and there's a peace that's there. There's a, a fulfillment that's there. We have those times where we can truly testify that to love God above other things and above other people is like a starving person coming to a delicious meal and just being satisfied in God. So for God to command us to love him with everything of who we are is to let go of anything else and to find our satisfaction in him. Now the question is how? How can we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? I mean, if I'm struggling with idolatry this morning, I can't just wave a magic wand and start to love, can I? And the answer is no, you can't. So God has to do a work in you and he has to do a work in me. Four thoughts here on how we come to love God. Number one is this, 
Christians can love God because he first loved you. You can love God because he first has loved you. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the reason why we can love God is because he has loved us in extravagant ways. He has loved us by sending Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, sent Jesus down to Jerusalem in order to die in our place so that our sins could be placed upon him. This was extravagant, sacrificial love. And when somebody comes to you and loves you in extravagant, sacrificial ways, inside of you there is something that says, I like that. Thank you for doing that. When we see God, it's the same. He has been the one who moved towards us first. It was the way that God moved towards Israel. He went to Egypt, and there they were in their slavery, and he came down and scooped them out with his mighty arm and said, this is what I'll do for you. I will redeem you out of Egypt. For each one of us, God has come to us and loved us in extravagant, sacrificial ways. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and following. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So get the picture here. It's not that God came to us and said, man, I find you attractive. This is going to be fun for me. God came to us and he looks at us and in our status, we are seen as ungodly, opposed to God. We're seen as sinners, not very lovely. And yet God comes to us extravagantly and sacrificially and loves us through his son. So we can love God because he has shown us love. Point number two, Christians can love God because he has given us his spirit. Ephesians chapter 3 and following says this, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be, now notice here, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. This is where love takes place. Love happens in the inner being of who we are, in our heart. And we can't get to our heart and just flip the love switch on. So what God has done is he has given us his spirit in our inner being, notice, so that, for one purpose, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So just think about this reality here. God has given you his spirit in your inner being. And if this morning you're singing those songs or you're hearing God's word and you're saying, thank you. Thank you for loving me, an ungodly person, a sinner, somebody who is weak. You're saying, 
Thank you, God. That is a result of the Holy Spirit in your life right now attributing worth to God. Right now, there's a testimony of the Holy Spirit in your life. God has given you his spirit so that you can say, thank you, God. I love you. Christians can love God because he's given you, given us his Holy Spirit. Number three, Christians love God now by being devoted to him at the heart level. All right, because God has loved you, because God has given you his spirit, now we're going to be devoted to him. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters, for he either he will hate the one and love the other. Notice, that's, that's part of the heart, hatred or love. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So this is where it becomes personal. God has done what he needs to do in order for you to love him, and now you have to make a choice. But notice, God has done the work for you. And so this morning, this is always a challenge for me because I'm thinking, what is going on in my heart? Is my heart being given over to all of these other little gods or these idols that are in my life, or is my heart being given over to God himself? And Jesus is saying, you can't play the game with God. You're going to love either him or something else. And so you have to choose. You have to repent of where you've been with your affections. And God gives you the ability to do that. And now you choose, okay, God, I'm going to walk in obedience to you. I want to be loving you. I want to be serving you. Point number four, Christians love God by tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. All right, how am I going to love God with all my heart? Part of this is I'm going to now turn my appetite towards him. I'm going to feed on his word. I'm going to look for his work in my life. I'm going to look into his word. So you notice Again, we've talked about these two different categories. You notice the divine sovereignty where he has to do a work in your life. So he saves you and he loves you and he gives you his spirit. And then you notice the responsibility that follows up with that. Now love him, walk in obedience to him. So where are you this morning as we finish point number one? Just where is your heart and Jesus is saying this, that wherever you've been, here is the path that you need to be walking down. Here is where your heart needs to be, loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Everything about you needs to be devoted to loving God. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He could have just dropped that statement and been done, but he didn't. He continues on to point number two, and that is this, love your neighbor so this is the second great commandment. And at first glance, it seems to be the harder commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why does that seem to be harder? It seems to be harder because God is perfect. He's the one who provides. He's the one who protects. It's easy to love him. And I can say, God, I love you. And yet I got these problems with people in my life and I really don't love them. It seems to be that those who are in my life, the relational component here on a horizontal level can be the greater challenge. God, I love you. I'll be in church on Sunday. 
I'll crack open the Bible this week, but it's these people that give me problems all the time. So with this answer, Jesus is drawing once again upon the law, and this time he's using Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19, verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he kind of, that statement there at the end says, all right, I want you to know I'm the Lord. I've given you this commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And leading up to this passage in verse 18, Moses is talking over and over again about what it looks like to love one's neighbor. Okay, so I'm going to move quickly through this. You can just listen. I've got nine things right here and you can just listen. Here's how Moses instructed Israel on how to love one's neighbor. In verses 9 and 10 of Leviticus 19, he says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. That's one outside of the community of God coming in. And he says, I am the Lord your God. So point number one, how can I love my neighbor? Leave some provisions for the poor. Number two, verse 11, he says, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. How do I love my neighbor? Point number two, tell the truth. Point number three, he says in verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. How can I love my neighbor? Just simply be fair with them. Number four, verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. How can I love my neighbor? Be kind to the deaf and blind. Number five, Leviticus 19, verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Okay. Point number five, practice blind justice. No partiality to the poor or to the great. Number six, verse 16, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. Okay, number six, avoid slander. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. Avoid harming your neighbor is number seven. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Just reason truthfully with your neighbor. Verse 18, he says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, nine, avoid vengeance and grudges. All right, so there are practical outworkings of what it looks like to judge or to love your neighbor. But let's just dig into this. What is the most challenging part for us in obeying God with this command? What's the most challenging part? The most challenging part is when our neighbor has not loved us. The most challenging part is when they have hurt us. And yet Jesus doesn't leave any exceptions here. He doesn't say love except when somebody hurts you. The command is love without exceptions. And we know who our neighbor is. Jesus has shown us that in the parable about the Good Samaritan, it's whomever God has put next to us. 
So love him or her, and on what condition or with what um, comparison should I love my neighbor? The law says, as I would love myself. Love my neighbor as I would love myself. We care for ourselves. We treat ourselves with kindness and provision. So here it is. God has put people in your lives. And Jesus commands you to love your neighbor, to respond to your neighbor as you would respond to yourself. Question. Does this mean that we agree with everyone? No, absolutely not. Our minds are not glorified yet. We can't agree with everyone on everything. But what we can do is love one another even in our disagreements. When we disagree, we approach those disagreements not with the ultimate goal of being right, but with the ultimate goal of being able to walk away and say, I obeyed God by loving that individual. I didn't slug him in the face with my words. They walked away knowing that they were loved. Love your neighbor. Let me just refer to 1 Corinthians 13, attributes of love. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is what love looks like. So let me tell you how I was loved just a few weeks ago. We were in a pastor's meeting um, down in Holland at Pastor Mike's shop. And normally we read through a chapter of a book and discuss it. But that particular week, uh, for some reason, we hadn't read through a chapter. And Pastor Andy says, okay, time to go around the table. We're just going to check in with each other. So we checked in. And Pastor Mike, he's in the corner um, at that corner end of the table. And he starts off and just shares what's going on in his life. And as these guys start talking, I'm thinking to myself, am I going to be real or am I going to fake it? And so Pastor Mike finishes up. I can't tell you what he said that particular day. Next was Pastor Darren. And Darren went, and I can't tell you, but the thought was, am I going to be real or am I going to fake it? And then Pastor Andy went, and then he turned to me. And in that particular moment, I felt myself saying, can I trust these guys to love me or not? And leading up to that, I had had just a few hard weeks. And to be honest, my soul, my heart, my inner being had just been in some very dark places. And I didn't want to be a fake. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't know what this looks like, but... I'm going to talk. And all of a sudden, I just started to cry. You know, when that lip starts to quiver, the chin starts to quiver, and I'm like, oh, stink, this is bad. <laughs> <laughs> all right, 
here were six guys in the room, and here's what happened. Those guys were patient. Those guys were kind. They were bearing with me. They were enduring with me. They didn't come back around and offer simple formulaic answers. They just let me talk. They were present. And when I was done, they went on to Jason, next guy. Since then, Andy has been telling me, dude, do you need a hug or something? I'm like, keep your arms off of me, all right? <laughs> I don't want that. And to be honest, I can't remember a time where I've cried in a pastor's meeting. But these guys were here like brothers there just saying, okay, we can endure with you. We can be patient with you. We can love you. And along they went with me and practiced this kind of love. Have I disappointed them along the way? Absolutely. Have people disappointed you along the way? Absolutely. And you know, it's really easy when folks have disappointed you to come back with truth that feels like darts. Because you want to use that truth because you know it's truth and you just want them to feel a little bit of your pain, don't you? Along the way, Jesus is saying, no, love your neighbor as you would yourself. Here's another just thought that we have to keep in mind. The most vulnerable among us need to be loved as well. There is just a thin line of skin that separates the most vulnerable among us. And as Christians, we are going into an election season where there is a proposal that says the most vulnerable among us do not need to be loved. And it's sin. Those in the womb are our neighbors. And one of the linchpins for the Christian view of life and how we treat the most vulnerable among us is that we would love our neighbors as we would want to be loved ourselves. Nobody wants to have a pill shoved down a throat and leaked into your bloodstream. Nobody wants to be backed into the corner of a womb with a scalpel or some tool coming in. It's sin. And so as Christians, we know that God commands us to love him and to love our neighbor. End of discussion. There's no room there for seeing it any other way. Love makes a choice. Love either moves towards the person or moves away from the person. Love chooses to move towards the person in spite of what might happen in return. So love your neighbor. Okay, why did Jesus put these two commandments together? To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. 1 John chapter 4 Verses 7 and 8 says this. Beloved, let us love one another. And I know he's specifically talking within the context of the church now. He's specifically talking about brothers and sisters. He's narrowing it in here. The neighbor is the brothers and sisters. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not 
love does not know God because God is love. And so Christians, one of the truths that we have to keep out in front of us is that if we are going to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're saying yes to God. Yes, I believe in you. Yes, I've received Jesus as my Savior. Now, the Bible says that out of that love that we have for God and his work inside of us, then there is an outflow of that love, a commitment to love one another. Even if we disagree on things. So I should be able to walk with Christians next to me, and I should be able to have a different conclusion about something, but that person know in the very end, Nate still loves me. Because it's not about the issue. It's about loving that individual. And again, I just think here we are as a church with several hundred different personalities and several hundred different perspectives. And here's what God has called us to. He's called us to a gift. He's called us to this opportunity to love him and to to walk on this higher plane where we're not descending to the level of the world where we're divided over kind of preferences and issues and this or that. We are committed to loving God and above that God says, yes, now you can love one another and you can walk in unity and fellowship with each other. So any Christian who's here this morning and is saying, man, I am just like this towards that person. You're walking in sin. You have to repent of that and obey Jesus here. And you do that because this is what God has brought us to. He's brought us to a relationship with himself. He's born us. We have him in our being. And now we love one another. So Jesus puts these two commandments together to show us that they can't be separated. To love God with everything that you are goes now with the second commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. To say I can't love my neighbor is to say I don't have the love of God in me. Love God, love your neighbor. Now we just close with a question. Where are you? Where are you? Verse 32, here's the scribe. And the scribe says to Jesus, Perhaps under conviction, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, did you see that there? The scribe gets something. He gets the priority here. To love God and to love one's neighbor is much more than offering burnt offerings and sacrifices. Those are the religious external steps. Those are acts of obedience which were important under the old covenant. They truly mattered. And yet the scribe recognizes a trap that we can fall into these external forms of obedience and not have the heart that God wants. And so God is after your heart this morning. He's after your commitment to him. Yes, external obedience is important, but your heart is more important. God wants your affections. And so Jesus could say to him, hmm, you are not far from the kingdom of God. 
He can see that something is going on in the scribe's heart, in his mind. And so he says, you're not far. You're so close. You're, you're so close to being under the rule and reign of God in your life. The question is, where are you this morning? As a Christian, I know I've drifted off into to places of disobedience. And I want to repent of that. And I want to come back to this place of obedience where my heart is not given over to lesser things, but over to God. Where are you this morning in your heart as it relates to God and your neighbor? Keep your eyes on Jesus through the gospel. Here's our example. He's going down to Jerusalem because he loves his father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's doing this because he loves his neighbor. And now we follow the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We follow Jesus who's out in front of us, who has shown us what love for God and love for neighbor looks like. We keep our eyes on him. Love God, love your neighbor. Let's pray.